Kia ora, and welcome to Now I Am Listening, brought to you in association with adjacentcommunications.com. I'm your host, Andrew Johnson, and with me today is actor and writer Claire Chitham. Many of you know Claire's work from stage, film and television screens, but today we go behind the scenes to find out how Claire's real-life experience helps her communicate with the world around her. We look at the truth behind the constructs of fame and find out how she perfects the art of memorising words, telling a good story and being in the moment when it's needed most. And as a close friend for many years, I finally discover her real name. So let's get listening. Clear Chitham, now I am listening. How are you though? I am. I am, in, I am. I am. Thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Oh, thanks for having me. I feel like I have to schedule a podcast in order to find time to actually see you. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'll accept that. Yeah. My as, people as will talk to your people. Yeah, yeah. They get us coordinated schedule conflicts, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It feels like it takes, um, it feels like we would see, if you asked me and someone said, how often do you see Andrew? I'd go, oh, at least once a month. <laughs> and I it's honestly going to only be like twice a year Yeah, it's well I think, it's more, I think it's more than that But I think it's one of those things that we don't You know, it's like when you're really good friends with someone You don't have to see them and yes. talk to them every day Your time is precious then uh, Let's start with something precious I'll take you back to the 1980s <laughs> Dolphin Theatre, Onihanga There, a wee precious young actress called Claire Chatham Stands on the stage with dreams in her head What is she dreaming of, Claire? Oh my goodness, oh, that's so bizarre, it's only because you know where that theatre was. It was the fancy theatre of Onihanga, so... It's a beautiful theatre, I can still smell that theatre. I uh, It was the Dolphin Theatre in Onihanga and I started going there with weekly classes when I was eight years old. And my mother tried to find them because she could tell that I needed to do something because apparently I'd been sort of faffing around on stage even from the age of five. And I define, you know how you can remember, I guess you, you in your memory, you go back and you remember things from school or certain things that activate those memories. My entire childhood is uh, marked in my memory by years at Dolphin Theatre, by the shows that we did, by the people who I became friends with during that time. And by my acting career, as a teenager, as a whole, really, because it was so, I guess, it 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 interrupted the n- normal programming <laughs> of a teenager. Yes. And so I can't necessarily remember what year I was at school, but I can remember how old I was when I shot Black Beauty or how old I was when I got the role on Shorten Street. Like that's, and I can remember that it was 1994 because of that. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yeah. So all those things are very, yes, deeply embedded and important in my memory. The little girl in me... Oh, when I was eight years old, I that I, I just remember, I deeply remember that first year at Dolphin. I found my happy place. I found my people. I was like, this is it. This is all I want to be doing. It was literal coming home-ness, I suppose. It made sense to me. I felt confident up on stage even when... It was scary or I still was incredibly nervous and you were standing up in front of, you know, as eight, nine, 10, 11 year olds, you're still feeling intense waves of nervousness and fear standing up in front of people. But I still recommend drama classes to people. It pertains to the work that you're doing because it builds confidence at such a young age. And doesn't matter what you want to do or why you like being up there, I think all of us can recognise that if you get comfortable with standing on a stage, saying something and having some people in an audience either A, listen, B, even clap, 
that that's amazing. Yeah. But yep. the, just the listening and paying attention, and that you didn't die, and that nothing bad happened to you when you step on the stage, <laughs> yeah. that teaches some pretty brilliant fundamentals to help you as an adult. Yeah, I, I think that's. I mean, it, you're always at that awkward age when you're a kid and teenager and trying to find yourself and you know fit in and not stand out. Whereas you know doing acting and being on stage kind of was the complete opposite. It really was, and I became friends with a variety of people at that age as well it wasn't just my peers in school age like we had classes the classes were grouped I think it was sort of like 8 to 12 year olds was one class and then 12 to 14 was another and 14 to 16 was another so at the end of every year we'd do the big end of year school production and at the end of the first year at the age of eight I got the role of Pinocchio that was my that was the beginning (laughs) of it all if I hadn't been given the lead role maybe I never would have had this goddamn (laughs) desire to be an actress and so you talk about Blake beauty you were 12 when yes. you got in this big production which was the revising of the original series yes. yeah i remember being picked up in the dark at 5 a.m mm-hmm. and driven in a van and now i know that i went to bethel's beach i couldn't remember that at the time when i was younger but um i remember having to the reason we went so early was because we had to cross a creek uh, cross water to get to this, you know, far off remote location, which is basically in the sand dunes at the back of Bethel's Beach. And I remember the smell of the set. I remember being in the makeup trailer. I remember being allowed to drink free Milo all day long and thought that was one of the best things in the whole <laughs> yeah. world. Um, yeah, and and the people, and I just, I just think everything about it felt you know, sounds corny, but it felt like home or it just felt like where I was meant to be. Maybe it felt like my version of Disneyland. I don't know, one of those two places, yeah. two things. And, yeah, and I I kind of kept auditioning for things after that. I was 12, 13, 14, 15, and I probably did a maybe four or five other quite big things, a pilot for this and an ad here. And, um, and, and then I'd auditioned for Shortland Street when I was about 15, hadn't got one role, and then I auditioned again, and I and that was Waverley. And Waverley was only meant to be there for five weeks to fill in for Marge on the reception desk. Oh, so you literally were just a fill-in team. Yeah, that's a team, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to eight years later. Yeah. Um, well, but no, it wasn't really that. It was, at the time, it was, it was five weeks that it got extended to kind of eight weeks, and then they kept extending. And I remember ha- having to take a break to go and sit my school C exams. And then they wanted me back still. And I was like, this is amazing. It's still going. And it sort of kept going for about nine, oh, t- about 10 months. And then they kind of came to me and said, thank you so much. That was awesome. We loved your character. She's done now. And I was sort of left in the middle of my, I think, sixth form year. Um, what's that, year 12 or something now? And... Um, I've been doing homeschool uh, and I didn't know what to, all I wanted to do was act at that point. You know, it's just, it's still, it was, it was all consuming. Yeah. Because it must have been really overwhelming. And I mean, Shortland Street's quite famous for being fast turnaround television. I think at one point in the world, you know, it was the fastest in the world doing it was, a, an yeah. episode a day or something. Yeah. Yes. Well, they were shooting 20, anywhere from 23 to 27 minutes of television a day, which is a commercial half hour. And that's, you know, it was the fastest in the world at one point. And I guess at the time, the pace when you're that young, the pace didn't hit as hard. It hit harder when I was 24 and 25 and I was like, and you just, I think everything when you're 24 and 25 is just like big and intense and overwhelming and all happening fast or you want it to be. 
I definitely had a huge physical crash when I finished. I guess just at the time, the intensity, the excitement, it was a very new show. I still remember the first time I got recognised and I was with my friends in a mall somewhere and it was just embarrassing. It wasn't cool. You didn't cover that. It was just embarrassing. And then because we're still that whole kind of tall poppy thing so ingrained that your friends go, um, and then I guess it just sort of grew slowly at that point. And then when I finished, but I was, I was kind of known by the time I finished. And then I ended up going back to school, doing my last year of school at senior college in the city. And then, um, and I do remember I was recognised, but I slowly started to be, people cared less. I was like, oh no, this isn't that big a deal. Like, yeah, yeah. But it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't carry it around with me too much then. By the time I went back, which was when I was about a year and a half later, like um, 19, they asked me to come back. And I guess from that point onwards, it was big. Core cast characters never really came back once they'd left back then. They died or they they just disappeared. Now they die and come back. Up Ferndale Hill somewhere. (laughs) Back then it was kind of a new thing. So I knew when they asked me to go back that it was a big deal. And I knew that if I worked my ass off, whatever that meant, or, you know, was just sort of gave it my all that maybe this could turn into something. And I had that sense about it when I was sort of 19. Um, and it started as a three-month contract. Again, that turned into a three-month contract. Cause like you say, the fast turnaround nature of that show means that characters come and go. It's soap. That's what it does. Story is king. Characters come second. And so I always had that sort of thing of this could all be over any second. It was sort of like a feeling that I took with me in my body every day. And it was about, I was there for about two years before I actually got my first one-year-long contract. And that was the first time that I ever felt any sense of like, exhale about like oh okay I'm one of those I'm one of those characters now and so other people might have a very different perception of that it was always this this thing that was kind of could all be over any second but yeah I ended up staying for uh seven years it's a long time yeah and it was at the height I was 22 23 24 so it's obviously an incredibly kind of important intense age and then it was the it was an intense time for Shorty Street because was at the peak of its importance in in the culture and society and it was kind of on a par with all blacks and news presenters you know like we were on the cover of magazines and part of our publicity thing was we had to go to school fairs and like I went to a lot of a lot of public events you're popular at the Waverley school fair in South Island (laughs) (laughs) oh it took me 25 years before I ever went to Waverley like who didn't send me to Waverley on a publicity trip when I was 20 I don't know I mean the next woman's days cover that's that's where you can do it finally yeah how did you navigate that like how did your brain like do the work and be a good actress etc but get your head around that that evolving concept that you're part of something that was actually becoming a reflection of society and as you say is recognizable as the all blacks and was actually starting to reflect society in the dialogue and and things like that how did Mm. you get your head around it Uh, At the time, I had mentors to follow. I had the people on the show who were a few years older than me who had been there from the beginning, people like Ange Bloomfield, Angie Dotchin, who played Kirsty, Teresa Healy, Craig Parker, Michael Galvin. They were all these actors who had come out of drama school um, and or had been on the show from day one and had experienced the climb much faster and harder than I had. But I do feel like I became... I leaned on them and and uh, watched them. And I've been, I guess, look, I also think I've been an observant and a curious person from day dot. And if you've got any kind of, you know, awareness around what you're doing and you have to have that as an actor, um, 
you're always analyzing what you're doing and having to kind of rewatch it or replay it or judge, you know, you have to have that sense of self as an actor. Um, and so I guess I always had that awareness of what was going on, and, but I had people to watch and they led me and they helped me and I watched other people make mistakes and I just tried to kind of keep my feet on the ground. And I have a very ground, I had a very grounded family. I, you know, I, had, I didn't come from an artistic background. Nobody was teaching me what, I, I didn't get comfortable with the idea of him calling myself an artist until about seven years ago. <laughs> right. I mean, I just, it wasn't in my world. And um, and so those people completely became my teachers. Um, I still look up to them. And I Robbie Malcolm, Danielle Cormack, who, who at the time were actors I idolised, um, you know, within the next five or six years became friends and people that I leaned on and people that you would sort of look at and go, oh, okay, no, well, they're doing that. That's fine. Or if it just, I don't know. And, and having a sense of self-respect, I wanted, I wanted a long career. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And you didn't have to look far to see people blowing up their careers by bad, with bad behavior. And I know that people say these days with social media, it's so much harder because everything's, you know, in view or vision, but it, it, you're always being looked at or judged by the people close to you. And, and not that you're being judged by them necessarily. You're probably only judging yourself, but right. You're, you're always, yeah. that reflection is always close by. Um, and so I kind of, yeah, my, my, my parents definitely instilled sort of good behavior and be a good girl in me. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was certainly through being, being uh, mentored and guided by those people. I think there was no, there was not, there's nothing in the system to help you there was nothing in the system of that that place itself or anywhere in tv or film I don't really think unless you find good it's good it's good leaders it's good producers it's good fellow actors uh good directors who know how to teach and guide and hold your hand there isn't enough of that happening in the industry still isn't and did you ever worry that your identity was being consumed into Waverly and that that's just now anyone's just that you became Waverly and there was no delineation between Claire and Waverly? Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, yes, there was an obvious issue and challenge that was occurring at the time, definitely. And at the time, now that I can look back on it, when if you had met me in real life during those years, I... I had affectation, not affectations. I would greet you with a very firm handshake and say, hi, I'm Claire. And people would go, oh, oh, you're not like your character at all. And that's because Waverly spoke up here and she had a really high voice and she spoke really fast and was all of these other things. And of course, wasn't me. But I also worked quite hard to very quickly show you that that is not me. And that came from wanting to be seen as a good actor I wanted to be seen as somebody who had the ability to put on a coat of a character and wasn't like that. And just, as you say, my identity moving around in the world. And, and I think that was a big fear when I left um, the show. And I knew, I guess, again, in my personal life, my friends and my family and my world, I knew who I was with them. It was all much more to do with the perception of my career. Um, but I also like theatre was my first love and I always wanted to do, I think there's something innate in an actor where you want to put on different coats of characters and variety helps and, vari you know, like 
it, you hear stories, it's, it's very true. You, you spend, you know, five years playing a really good character or you want to spend five years playing a really bad one because it's more fun and it's different from what you did before and you learn and experience different things when you're trying out, trying different hats on. Um, and so I definitely got to a point with my role at Shortland Street where I felt that and I, um, I ended up going and buying the rights to a play and sort of finding a friend who was a director and we put a play on and I got to stand in, on stage in front of my peers when I was about 22 in a, in a professional theatre capacity and sort of show them that I could play somebody else. And for me that was a huge um, huge sense of achievement just in that I could do it for myself because I worried that I had lost that ability um, and also just to feel proud and stand in front of my, my peers in the industry and say I'm, I'm that kind of actor. Um, then when I left the show, I totally freaked out and thought I was never going to get a job in this industry again and I became a Pilates teacher. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I guess I worked and then the next role for me that did come along that obviously was also kind of pretty popular and that people saw was Aurora and Outrageous Fortune and I still remember on uh, day one of shooting that was uh, I was perform I was in a lingerie strip show uh, stripping down to my underwear next to two 18 year olds and at that point I was 26 or something and I thought I was so old and I was like oh this is so embarrassing but I still remember the director um Mark Beasley, who ended up being one of the producers on the show, coming up to me, he just whispered in my ear after he got, after we f finished all of that, and he was like, nobody's going to be thinking of Waverly now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I bloody hope not. <laughs> but of course I wanted to do that. Of course I wanted to prove to myself and to others that I was more than one character. And Aurora was very popular. I mean, she was only on the, the show for two seasons. It was yeah, only really short. No, yeah, it was really short. It seemed a lot longer before the bus came along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> With all those jokes. I know, it's quite strange, isn't it? Because I do get a lot of people, it's still to this day, is a bit is almost 50-50 with where the people recognise me from Shorty Street or Outrageous. Right, okay. And I was on Shorty Street for eight years. <laughs> yeah. And that was many years ago now. And Outrageous is a little bit more recent, but yeah, it was only a season and a half, actually. I think that says a lot about the relationship of, you know, that Van and Aurora kind of established with each other, where it was very much Romeo and Juliet-esque, and those stories resonate, people fall in love Ooh, with yeah. romance, and and then, yeah, the obviously epic tragedy of her being killed by a party bus. <laughs> <laughs> the irony. <laughs> Um, exactly. So, yeah, and look, it was a gift to be able to be on a show that was so different and that was so fun and these characters who got to behave badly and say whatever the fuck they liked. And then, but I also, by that point, I think I had faith in myself because I had done quite a lot of theatre by that point. I was doing um, shows at the Silo and ATC here in Tamaki and, um, and I guess I felt like a cohesive actor and, uh, you know, yeah, that I was kind of capable of other things. So it definitely helped me kind of say, hey, I'm not just that character. Probably won't have never been on the other side of the camera or the other side of the stage. Because I find this fascinating for myself. I've had limited exposure through theatre sports through my teenage years and being in the Auckland Theatre Sports 
gang, uh, which again was partly sort of through youth side of things to try and get out of my comfort zone and because being on stage not knowing what you're going to say mm, is very, very different. Yeah, and, mm. it's, and I've used it to this day, I, mm. I hope. Um, but, you know, some people don't ever get the chance to be on the other side and actually, you know, stand on a stage and see an audience or have to talk it to, it to a camera or pretend that a camera is not there. How did – do you find one's easier – or more fun or more interesting or evokes a better part of you as an actor when you're doing theatre versus television or film? Mm, I've always struggled to answer this question. I think, not that question, sorry, that yours is a bit more complex, but there is fundamental differences, I think, with people being on stage and whether it's that you've learned a speech or you're reading the speech and you're going to get up and stand and give that speech, you know, or be in a play versus screen, is the... It's the big picture stuff about what story you're telling and the message of the whole thing. The thing with theatre that's amazing is that you have rehearsal time and you learn it and you embody it and you practice that stuff over and over and over and over and over again. And I would say to anyone, and I still do, who has to give a speech, if you're nervous, literally the, the best thing that you can do for yourself is do it so many times you want to hurl. But that repetition will not just put it into your brain, it puts it into your body. And that is what will save you. And it's happened to me. Um, and the process of learning those lines helps you embody the character and embody the story and the ideas behind the lines. And that stuff is the joy that I get from performing. And I think the addictive part of performing, especially on stage, is this flow state that you can achieve wherein you no longer have to consciously think about what you are doing, you are just allowing it to come out of your body and your voice. And it's like surfing or it's like singing. It's, it, it is, it's like writing. Um, it is 100% one of those sort of physical and slightly metaphysical experiences that, um, that you really only get because you take the time to rehearse, put it in the brain, put it in the body. Um, and <clears throat> for example... When I was doing, I did a um, one-woman show uh, in Dunedin at the Fortune Theatre, and it's the hardest thing. It's probably still the hardest thing I've ever done, and I did it for that exact reason. I was meant to be going to a wedding in Mexico, and I said no, and I went to Dunedin in winter <laughs> to do this thing. That's commitment to the craft. Says something about, yeah, exactly. The play and the show itself was quite, um, it was about a woman's psychological sort of breakdown, and so there was parts of it that were repetitive on purpose because this woman's life was repetitive, and that's what helped drive her crazy, for want of a better term. But there was a moment on stage where I was um, walking, to, sort of walking up and down this ramp. And you have the thought before, this pertains to speeches as well, right? You have the thought before, uh, you just have the thought for the second before it happens of, I don't know what I'm going to say next. And I was the only human on the stage. There was no stage manager and my stage manager was operating lights up the back. So there was nobody to save me. And there is no script stuck somewhere. There is nothing like that. <laughs> it's like, no, I've been doing this thing for two weeks. I should bloody well know it. That's my job, you know. And I just, I managed to stay calm enough to go, okay. And I just walked away up the stage and I walked back down and I was like, no, there's nothing. Walked away, walked back. Just blank space in my mind. And, it, and I turned around and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. And then I walked up and I turned, I, I sort of turned my body around and all of a sudden my body went 
And I looked at the ground and I went, oh, that's right. This is the bit where you're usually up at that corner and you look in that corner and this is what comes next. My What I'm trying to say is my body remembered what to do next and it went, and this thing came out. So as far as the theatrical experience, that's just sort of a mass big picture summary of what the experience is like for me, what happens when you're on stage learning this whole thing and then the joy and the you know of, of performing is that you get to do it to a different audience every night and it is the audience that the different audience is what creates the different performance some people kind of look and go how do you do that same thing every night and remember, remember all those lines and it's like the lines get memorized by rehearsal and practice I also innately just seem to have a good memory for it from a young age. But it's what I do. So it's like a sports person. I can't throw a ball <laughs> at all. But um, and, and so that overall experience for me is, is a package deal. And it's, as it's saying, the, the audience is what will infect and change your performance every night. Somebody laughs or coughs at a different point or they don't clap or they don't laugh and you, your energy is driven by that. So you're just in this constant um, present moment state because it's all you can do to get through that entire thing (laughs) Um, and I love it and that is sadistic (laughs) I'm aware of it (laughs) but you know when you're working opposite other actors that's a different experience again because they say something differently and you catch that ball differently you know acting on stage with with fellow actors is a tennis match and you are giving and receiving at all at all points in time. So again, that exchange is part of what I love. So that's the very long-winded way of saying that's why I love theatre, but that's also what it feels like for me and the experience. And to contrast that with being on set, I know that, yes, they're both acting, but the actual entire experience of being on set is so different. I, I am addicted to it in the same way, but it is about the people. It is about the collaboration. It is about um, how... All of these people that get employed to make that TV show or film have a creative input and idea about the show, the characters, the story, that scene, or literally that shot. And they all help create the, I liken it to, um, you know, a thousand piece puzzle. Yes. Yeah. Where you, you look at the outside of the box and that's the script, but everybody contributes to colouring it in and putting a piece in and you get a different you get a different picture at the end of it but I love that collaborative process and I like being a small part of that and I know what my responsibilities are as an actor that what I'm in charge of but ultimately somebody else is in charge of how that picture comes together and how that story is edited together and the ideas behind that story, i.e. the writer. So I get to choose by looking at those scripts and kind of going, yeah, that's a story I love. I think that's got a cool message. I think that's entertaining or it's going to make people think something interesting. And I get to choose to be a little part of that bigger picture. And so it's the whole of that that I love and it's the language of being on set. It is like joining the circus and it is. You take 150 people and you we put we literally you get put in tents and portaloos and in mud and you get moved around from location to location and it is the opposite of glamour and then that all comes together for this one little moment that has to occur between action and cut everyone on that set has a job to do that either happens before action or during action and cut or after um Mine just happens to be that piece. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not that that's the most important piece because it isn't and you cannot do any of them. Literally, 
the whole thing, it's like baking a cake kit just doesn't work unless you got all the ingredients. And that is the part, the collaborative part, the people part. I think because I started um, at such a young age and like I said, I remember just the smell and the excitement and it is like all these people have to come together and it's crazy that for a moment in time, 150 people can be silent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. you hope that the the world is a bit silent or that there's no noise inside a studio. No planes flying over the top. Exactly. Yep. For that moment in time, for you to then be in charge of your piece, which is the same as theatre for me, that experience of the acting beat on stage where I get to go from, you know, to try to stop consciously thinking and be in the in the physical being of the role. It's just for a much shorter space you know, period of time. A lot of those sort of factors, I think, still create a level of intensity that can actually match what it's like to stand on stage in front of a live audience. Well, yep. Because you've got, sometimes you've got 100 people watching and paying, or or they're not watching because that's too distracting. So they're all looking away and you know that the pressure of those people being, everyone's feeding into the energy of what, what you're trying to create. And you know that, you know, yeah, that, that moment is the moment that I'm in charge of or that me and my fellow actor is in charge of and you still anything can happen. And, yes, we all know that you can make a mistake and they can edit it out, but that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to, you know, find something brilliant and new and exciting and elevate everything, just like a costume designer is trying to elevate the experience and craft the most beautiful suit in the world. Yeah, I think that's my sort of comparison of the two but yeah. why I love the two of them and there's so much that I love that is different but essentially the long form of theatre you can add to the short form but it's not just about that I don't kind of sit in my sit in some trailer and ignore everything for seven hours and then come out and just do one tiny bit of acting it's like I talk to everyone and I want to I want to be a valuable part of that team so yeah that's my team sport <laughs> they're both team sports aren't they you can't throw a ball but you're a good team member I'm good. <laughs> Well, I think you've I mean, you articulated that perfectly because, I, I mean, I love both sides of it from the perspective I've had behind the scenes and, and then also being an audience member. And I've always found it hilarious when you see actors and actresses who think they are the number one most important aspect of a production or the film. And when you consider the amount of time and effort and hours that go into all of years of pre-production and writing and costume design and mm. set design, all those pieces that come for perhaps what is really someone working maybe 15 working days across a shoot or something and you think, gosh, you know, and then they get their Academy Award and thank their mum. And it's like, you know, it's just such a weird dynamic that unlike you who's saying you actually enjoy being part of the collaboration, actually the whole experience is what drives you, not the fame and fortune of being this glamour puss at the top of, the, you know, the pyramid. It's, it's funny how some people that's what drives them and it's just lovely to know that that's not what drives you. Yeah, I think the outside perception of it can be that if you do that thing, you'll get fame and fortune and awards or whatever maybe. But once you've done it a couple of times and you're in it, you know perfectly well that you have to, like I said, you have to get in the muck and do all of these other really hard things and there's no guarantee that you're going to get that stuff. So then at some point you have to start asking yourself, is it worth it? And for many, many people it's not. And for many, many people they walk away. But when you, um, I don't know, just kind of fall in love with that aspect of it and, yes, there's a bigger, I guess now I'm aware that I'm, I'm interested in storytelling. That I that the part of it that um, that I am most driven by or connected to is like I like sharing stories. I want. I think that sh- I think I do now think that storytelling can change the world, and I do now think that artists help reflect the human experience and 
give us a sense of ourselves and provide people with the feeling of they are not alone and that that is one of the most powerful, important, you know, kind of things that you can do for others short of heart surgery. So I choose That's a that good comparison. <laughs> yeah, yeah, heart surgery is pretty, pretty up there. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so for you, I mean, you talk about um, – connecting with people right so in terms of collaborating on a on a set do you think that being what people would term famous or being a celebrity or having been on the woman's day what six seven times um <laughs> mostly not for scandals which is good no. uh but that that is you know that fame is what people sometimes perceive as being a connection versus authentic connection and do you think that there's an important difference because it seems to be in our world of this Instagram fame that people are blurring the lines of what a true connection really is about. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, they are, aren't they? Yeah, it is a tricky time with regards to that because you're 100% right. There is a huge difference and one of them has value and um, will take you somewhere and one of them is empty. Um, however, in my experience of being so-called famous in in Aotearoa, for me what that is has always been a byproduct of the of the um it's been a byproduct of the source right like I always knew it was a byproduct I'm smart enough to see that that's what happened but it wasn't what I wanted I was I've only ever really come at it from that place of I want to do the acting I want to do the acting um and so as a byproduct that I knew you know, was a necessary part of it, uh, I just sort of thought, well, I'm going to have to figure out how to deal with that. And I was lucky that I played a character on a, on a popular show that was quite nice, even though she was, you know, could be deemed silly or annoying and other things, but nobody spat at me in the street. So people were nice to me. That is a thing that I do not think that if I had played a villain and that absolutely happens to actors, I do not know how you live with that. Is It's not easy. You definitely either need to end up hiding, moving overseas, getting a lot of therapy to help with that kind of thing because it's, it's not you and it's not yours. Whereas for me, people always just wanted to feel a connection with me. So there's a very big difference between people coming up to me in the street and just wanting to say hi and say to me, you know, my cousin was on Shortland Street. It's sort of like that's connectivity, right? That's what we all aching and seeking uh, to do so I feel like that part for me is how I kind of viewed it is like I've got enough energy to be if I'm out anywhere <laughs> even if I've gone to the supermarket I mean look sometimes it's it was annoying in the supermarket but if I'm going out into the world I got used to the idea that I needed to have enough energy to at least be able to cope with the fact that someone might want to say hi to me that is a really easy and minimal thing to do and I you know that wasn't a problem but if I'm in a state of mind in my life where something else is going on and I am not in a good place then I don't go out often so I suppose that is an adjustment as far as real connections you know there's, there's doors that have opened in the sense that people you know, me moving around in this world, more people know who I am than the other way around. But it means that sometimes, you know, yeah, relationships have been easy to form or I sort of meet lots of people in social environments. And I just think I always made it a, not a priority, but a desire to meet, have that relationship mean something. I didn't want it to be meaningless. I don't think it's meaningless. I think that 
I think that if somebody wanted to come up and say hi to me, then that's kind of lovely. And I wanted to honor that, you know, with a sense of um, not dismissing it. And, and again, like, gosh, when it was at its height uh, of that kind of thing, I was 22, I was going clubbing, I was going out to bars all the time, like, but my friends would wrap around and a lot of people would come and try and touch you or say hi. And yes, it definitely got overwhelming and intense at times and, you know, my friends would protect me at concerts and <laughs> get good at kind of um, putting a barrier up between me sometimes for sure. But again, I think that I, I still think I'd, um, I would, I'd do it all again or I've treat, I've sort of managed to get through it with a sort of modicum of respect and sensibility around it. As far as me ever thinking that that was a real connection, no, you know, like I, I, I have, I guess, maybe because of that, I've always valued my my friendships and relationships with maybe, I don't know if it's more intensity than somebody else would, but they've always been my lifelines. And so I've, and I, and I think maybe because of it, I always had to draw a really clear line between what my personal life was and what my public persona was. And I'm like, I decided at an early age, I was happy to give this part of me away and I have the energy for that, but this is a no-go. Um, whatever that kind of is or however that manifested itself. So I suppose it taught me to create a delineation between real connection and unauthentic connections. I certainly never thought that just because lots of people came up to say hi to me that I was really loved, <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's just – it's just not it's not true it wasn't it was obvious how, it wasn't true. but how do you also um, most people don't have to worry about someone's um, motivation to want to be your friend mm. so how have you been able to sort of figure out oh okay this person's just in love with the idea of me as opposed to they genuinely actually are someone that wants to get to know me and how do you safeguard yourself from that because it's not something that normal human beings really have to deal with because you're not a normal human being <laughs> in the most polite way <laughs> Um, cool. Thank you. Thank you. You're I don't welcome. want to be normal. No, I don't want to be normal. I feel like in a way I didn't safeguard myself from it for possibly most of my sort of 20s in the sense that, well, I never thought that just because someone was coming up to say hi that that they wanted something from me and that I was going to give it to them. But I also didn't move through the world with a big wall up. I think I was probably equally open with my kind of energy or chat, you know, so that when someone came along that I enjoyed talking to as well, we sort of ended up friends. I became a very good judge of character very quickly, actually. I did get that. I learned that at a young age. And it's easy for me to see, I think, when someone is just a bit sort of well, it's not genuine. Whereas there is a genuine reaction that happens when you meet someone. It actually happened with us, right? I yeah. met you because you were a friend of a friend and you came to see me in that show. <laughs> we did actually kind of know each other through friends of friends of friends on the outer right. skirtishy yeah, kind of aspect. And we, the only hunger connection was had been there in bits and pieces. But no, it was around, I think it must have been September, because I'm trying to figure out when I was coming back from work overseas and you were doing Rabbit at the Herald Theatre. 2008. And we went out and had a very large night together after the show. But, but, but we don't have to discuss the, the exact details of that evening. But I I have this weird 
I don't understand how it happened because I had gone to the show with other people as an audience member. Mm. You were obviously on stage with acting with one of my best friends um, who didn't come out with us. Mm. It just ended up you and I. And mm. to me, it's the only one of the only nights in my life that feels like a Hollywood film. You know, like, but for in the sense of it was just these little scenes of mm. this. We went to lots of different places yeah. and different things happened each time. I do think that I follow, I, I am very open to like, I'm a, I'm a yes to opportunities kind of a person, sometimes to a fault, 100%. And I've learned to manage that. But what I was going to say about that night was like, I think, as I say, we had a natural connection. We probably started talking to each other after the show. And it was like, well, I'm going to go here. You come with me because you're awesome. Like it, that's, it really who, was. that's what I do. And I, and I don't think maybe... I don't do that to many people. <laughs> Neither do I. That's you know, the thing. It's so like, I think quite that, that's a natural occurrence, and hmm. and and um and I'm good at being present moment, going, oh well, it's that person said that we should go to that thing. Let's try it. Like I definitely am a let's taste every part of life that we can kind of a person. And so, do you think that part of your way of being in the world works for you in theatre or on set, like when you're trying to tell a story, suspend belief sort of thing? Because you're bloody good at it. Oh well, I, thank you. But I also think that that's to, it's like hopefully, gosh, I mean, hopefully that's because you're doing your job well, right? As you say, like you're in the you're in the theatre and you're in the world, and we've built this vibe and energy and space to take the audience away and transport you for the night. Like that's what I want to do. You're selling oranges. I was selling oranges. I was giving away mandarins actually. You gave us two. Thank you very much. Yeah, that was nice. (laughs) Extra favours. But again, you know, that's big picture. That's the craft of storytelling, right? Like that's why we love a film by Steven Spielberg because he has mastered the art of taking you out of your lounge, even though that's what you're sitting with the cinema and transporting you to a world taking you on a journey that has this flow of ideas and messages and people. And I mean, even a great comedian does it, you know, like I think they take, it's incredible to be a stand-up comedian where you sort of, there's a performance to the character that they create so that they can get away with the type of comedy that they're going to deliver to you. Um, and it's, you know, it's a construct that comes from a place of understanding people. We couldn't do it if we didn't have an understanding of the psychology of humans and what makes a good show or what makes something funny of unpacking that. And people do it to varying degrees. And there's the, there is, you know, it's soap operas that are giving you an escape. I think it's really important to understand your audience in that space. Like a soap opera is there to be, be light and kind of, um, take you into an escapist kind of place while you're either making dinner or looking after the children. You know, it's the end of your day. Like there's a time and space to that sort of thing. Other ones are designed to capture worlds and ideas and introduce you to things, you know, the Wild West on Yellowstone or Ozark, the, you know, crime cartels of Ozark or a period drama or a fantasy sort of world and and again offer different types of escapism but they all have to understand the human experience and the psychological baselines in order to do that in the first place I guess I hope that as an actor and as a entertainer whatever like even when I've sort of been presenting it's like I just like it's it's a different type of connection that I'm seeking but it's like that hey I've got this idea and this thing like do you think this too <laughs> yeah um, yep. or do you understand what I'm trying to say even if you don't agree with it uh, is sort of I guess the question that I'm probably offering up internally when I do anything from speaking on stage to people to 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 
being in a character and in a role. Again, it's that connection thing. I think if I was seeking that connection to validate my existence as a human, then I would be in trouble. And I do think if you're in the creative space, you just have to have, you have an understanding that that is the equation. There is an equation that is occurring sometimes, whether you like it or not. I think that's the other thing. I think there was a part of that that for me was very much well, like, that is not, I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to my work, sort of, but, well, my life experience has been about letting go of that. <laughs> but that is one thing you cannot control. I can't control what other people think of me. I can't control what happens when I move, go out into the world apart from protecting myself. It, that was an aspect of being on that show and then pursuing work and acting that was just always going to be there. So you either need to accept it or, change, or or bugger off. Yeah, but I think it's an important point you, and it sort of resolves to part of what I'm trying to do with the podcast and an episode like this is to say to people, we don't remember facts, but we certainly remember stories. And, you know, you're not seeking that validation, but, you know, you get human beings to clap their hands together to tell you in silence that they get something you're doing in front of them mm. on stage, right? I always find it fascinating when you're on stage and you watch people clap. It's the weirdest looking thing. When you've ever looked at a, a theatre, people clapping, don't you think, right? <laughs> it's just such a weird phenomenon. But it's that validation that you've connected with them. And mm. I think for people who are trying to give speeches or be part of connecting with it through work, whether they're giving a, a speech at, a, at an important event or whatever it is, that you're, you're seeking validation in that moment. And so understanding how you can achieve it. And I always say to people, think about how great you'll feel at the end of your speech because you always feel amazing mm. you always feel so good when, oh thank gosh that's over that's over get that feeling before you start that's what I try and do I try and feel that good that calm that relaxed like imagine it inside out before I do emceeing or I do anything that's sort of in that position mm. and I find it much easier to connect because you're in that sort of mindless state like you talk about getting yourself into when you're when you're walking around the stage because you've blocked out your, your, your talking and everything totally. to the point where it is just floating through air right when you were, if you were giving a speech, same thing, like if it is that aspect of rehearsing, right? If you're giving a speech, you can just practice it and practice it. Same with performing any kind of moment where you are going to stand up and kind of have to get into a space of trust with both time to get into that space of trust. You have to let go, right? There's an aspect of letting go that has to occur. Um, and in order to do that, most people, as you say, are too scared to. So, you just have to do whatever you have to do to get to that space where you're not scared of being in the moment and letting go in front of those people, whatever it is that you're going to do. There are times when the rehearsal, you know, as you say, the running of the lines and the knowing it inside out is important. And I always think that, I think what happens when you get up on stage to speak is, or when beforehand, that moment before, is you're focused on the words on the page or the presentation or the eulogy or the brief or whatever it might be in this minute detail and you think it's about the the sort of that really that sentence or those words on the page you've got to remember it's about the bigger picture story right if you get up on stage you could have written a five-page speech but you could get up and just say the first paragraph the middle paragraph and the last paragraph and hopefully you've told them a story and they get it which is kind of what a lot of storytelling is, is like, right? You know, it's just what details you're choosing to leave in and what ones you leave out, what are important. But that beginning, middle and an end, you know, that if you can get up on stage, a lot of the time with learning lines, especially auditions, which we have to generally learn very quickly and then get rid of in your brain quite quickly so you don't want to hold on to them in that space. I always, I used to learn words on a page like rote, like I had a photographic memory for it when I was on Shortland Street. And when I left, I had to unlearn that because it wasn't a very, um, it's not a helpful way for to do, it's not a helpful way to learn lines to be a good actor because the acting really is about the ideas in between the lines. 
what is the feelings and ideas that are happening behind the words and in the spaces. And that's kind of true of any kind of speech or storytelling. I mean, sometimes you're actually giving important information and obviously you've got to get that right. But the overall, what you're talking about is that whole idea of the overall feeling that you're going to leave your audience with. And so if there is important information, by all means, make sure that that's there in the middle. But, you know, do whatever you need to to be at ease at the beginning and to do whatever you need to to remind people of the things that were most important in that speech at the end. And that's kind of what plays and things do as well, right? So it's it's always about the story. What is the point of the story? What are you trying to communicate? And then what tone are you trying to do it in? Like, is it really serious and do you need people to concentrate? Is it silly and light? And then how do you go about creating that? And I think there's times when I know it's all about what you know inside you to be true. Like a scientist has a very different inner working and knowledge and cellular memory of so many things that I do not that when he gets up on stage to talk to an audience about something a study um, I, I heard this amazing uh, microbiologist speak recently about gut health and he said oh, you know he, he literally got up and he was like look I don't know what's going to come out I, I know what I want to tell you, but we're just going to see where this goes. And he was riffing on it because he was reading his room. He was able to have feedback from his audience and could see that we were all hanging off every word. And the speech went on for two, two and a half hours. And I think it was meant to be 40 minutes. And I do the same with sort of sometimes if I'm emceeing or speaking at an event where I kind of go, I know why I'm here. I know what story they want from me, but I haven't planned what I'm going to say because I know that I work better because it's already in me. I trust <laughs> that that information is already in me, just like he trusted that he always got 20 years of science behind him, so he didn't need to make notes. Um, he had some slides, um, and then he'd kind of go, oh, I should probably change the slide now and talk about this thing. You know, it's like I think we're all much more open these days to being – it's more alive when you are free with the information you're sharing or where you make it really specific to you. And so I think for me I – I trust when I know what I need to say, but I also find a bit of freedom when I get up and go, I'm going to make this up as I go along. And it's not conscious. It's much more about staying in the unconscious state, which you can, the only reason, like theatre, that you can trust is because you know the work is inside you and that the ideas and thoughts are already inside me. Same with a play. You've learnt the words, you've talked about it for four weeks with your director and your fellow actors and you've tried on the costumes and you've put it, you've moved it around the stage. Like I, that example of me forgetting my lines, the reason I remembered them was because my body remembered what came out of my mouth when I stood in this particular spot. And, and so you can definitely do both. You find what works for you, you know, like you might be a really meticulous person that needs to kind of have it all nailed down. The reality is everybody who's getting up to do anything live, no matter whether it's a podcast recording or a speech, you know, or a performance, you've always got the, the reason there's fear is because it's fear of the unknown. So you've always got to be ready for the unknown. So I think to go back to what you said about how you feel when you when you before you start is accept that it's going to it could go anywhere, accept it's a little bit unknown and that that's exciting. It's always kind of helpful to transition you know nerves occur because your, your nervous system is excited yeah and dr theater right kicks in so if you've yeah. got low energy you get the nerves because you use them and harness them to to perform at a higher level because you're not you you're a hyper version of you even if you're standing up as an MC, you're as yourself presenting right it's yeah, not you really know, you're it's in charge your... of that time and space and what happens next 
So you, yeah. you, you use your nervous system to help you do it. Because I always say to people, because they ask me a lot about that, oh, how do you do, how do you, I, and I'm petrified. I'm really quite self-conscious. I'm not actually quite, people think I'm a quite extroverted person. I'm not. I'm the opposite. Hence why I did theatre sports when I was 13, because I was like living in my sister's shadow as, oh, you're such and such as little brother at high school. I was like, no, I'm going to be this person on stage. And luckily I had two my best friends who, you know, have gone on to do a few little bits and pieces. <laughs> but, you know. They're all right at They it. did some mm. stuff. Um, but it was because I had the, the, the joy came from knowing it could actually go well, because most people are standing to do speeches or getting ready for them just thinking about everything that's going to go wrong mm. and I'm always like I get surprised at how well things go because I focus on that they could go better than I actually anticipate I might be surprised by how well the room reacts or how mm. much it flows on time and we keep on everything on the presentation all the cues go to plan and all that stuff I, it might go better than we thought you know mm. and people don't often approach it with that you know, because they're so fearful and they then don't get into that moment because their brain is so tied up with worry. And it's so focused. It's like anything, any task, right? If you're so focused on the negative outcome, that is what you will chase or follow, you know, as opposed to, I think it's, it is a concentration exercise, but sometimes the concentration is on being in that place, not on being in your head. And interestingly enough, I've been working on the other side of the camera a lot over the last seven years and one aspect of that work has become acting coaching and one of my mentors uh, Miranda Harcourt who teaches acting to some pretty impressive people has a a couple of a lot of the tools that we use when we are trying to for want of a better term fix or adjust or change someone's performance is all about getting out of the self-conscious state because you what you're describing is that most people, if fear is getting in the way, they are focused on their fear and they're not focused on the audience or the fact that there's 20 people here who, you know, have no expectations. They, they, they just want to hear this thing. Or they're all concentrating on their own problems as well. And so a lot of tools we use are about trying to get out of that self-conscious state. She likens it to, you know, when you open up your phone and you open up the camera and it's accidentally set on selfie mode but you weren't expecting it. So you sort of, everyone goes, ugh. <laughs> like, I don't want to see the low angle up my chin, up my nostril kind of, ugh. You know, that wasn't what I was hoping for. Or, or when you try and use Face ID and it doesn't accept it. <laughs> <laughs> is it like, is it that early in the morning that I can't unlock my phone you to social media like, scroll yeah. before I get, oh, okay. just make myself look presentable for my phone. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly different. But yeah. That's really, that's Maybe, self, self-confidence. Self-confidence, self exactly. It's bad for the self-confidence. <laughs> But when I feel like when you are too inwardly focused, you are not going to be able to perform the task that you are trying to perform well, no matter whether. Think of driving. I love driving yep. because it is a meditative state. Um, now that I'm doing this talk, I've realized those are all state. I just basically try to chase that sort of flow state constantly in my life. Yeah, but it's a pure place of authenticity, right? It's, it's essentially it's unconscious. It's so un it's yeah, and it's tapping into actually just being super aware without the worriness of being aware. Mm. Like it's actually being able to be conscious of what's going on unconsciously. Now, if you apply that to standing on stage or giving speeches or trying to create a content video for somebody, rather than focusing on the camera that is pointing at you and the this the light that is pointing at you or the audience that is pointing at you you've got to go back to the um the outwardly focused sort of point which is the story that you are trying to share or the 
you know, tone the idea of the product that you have made and love and are proud of. It's like make it about the product, make it about the audience, make it about anything else other than you worrying about yourself. And I do really think that it all kind of comes down to that at the end of the day. We just get in our heads, focus on what other people might think of me, but really what you're thinking is a thought of something what other people might think of me. You're not thinking... I'm ugly, <laughs> you know, like, oh, then yeah. it's still, it's even that it's all self-focused. So I've really, I've watched it in action with performers. And I do think it's probably true for anyone in this communications kind of space, trying to tell a story, focus on the story, focus on who you're telling the story to and what you are trying to affect by telling that story. And it crystallizes everything. And yeah, one of those things, even things like physicalizing it, um, getting it out of your body, like, you know, having something that you're holding or, and make it about that. Like, yeah, it's, that's, that's key, I think. Yeah. And, and I mean, you are your product, right? So as an actor, your mm. voice, your body, your physicality, your health, your well-being, mm. you are like, you know, some people who have a job, if the computer breaks down, it's very different than if your body breaks down, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, you oh, touched yeah. on health in terms of gut health and bits and pieces like that. So do you think that what you've had personally with your medical journey, um, being quite sick when you were 20 and that sort of shock of, of that change of being from someone who doesn't have times in hospital and understand all that, how that world works, to suddenly really understanding it, to how that's affected you, protect your body as an actor, as well as a person living in this world, but as an actor, because it is so central to you, it's your tool, it's your machine. Oh God, 100%. It's the only thing I've got. <laughs> and I have had just as much of a love-hate relationship with it as I'm sure every human kind of does, where you there's the things you love and the things you don't. But my obviously very big lesson at a young age was that if it doesn't work, I can't work. So that to me was literally... It. I was hospitalised when I was 22 with Crohn's disease and I was told that I was going to potentially have to have bowel surgery and that might mean a colostomy bag and that would mean, you know, at some point, not only does that sound hideous to a 22-year-old, but it meant that I would not work, be able to work. And I was in the middle of my job with Shorten Street at the time, which I adored and was very proud of. And um, uh, and so the idea of that being taken away with me from me, I just wasn't having it. And it's... I guess it is the thing that saved me because I realised that I had to look after the health and energy of my body and brain and voice and everything. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do this thing I loved. So ever since going on that journey, again, what it taught me about healing my body has been really intense and uh, something that I've become pretty obsessed and passionate about since then. But that's also because I learned to pr prioritise my health. And I don't think we're very good at that as a species. I think that um, one of the things I've learned from watching and studying us, us funny old humans is that, yes, we often, you know, these bodies are quite hard to kill <laughs> and we do a lot to, to, to damage them. And if the pandemic taught us anything, it was, you know, that actually without our health, we have nothing. <laughs> Yet we still don't prioritise it, sometimes over work or earning money or clothing or, in, you know, 
yes, kids and um, very real and important things can sometimes become more of a priority and that's where things get tricky. But sometimes we don't prioritise it over dumb stuff, <laughs> like keeping smoking because your friends are smoking or, you know, what I mean is it, full spectrum. But I have witnessed that we we find it difficult to really genuinely prioritise our health over other things. And the reality is, as you said, for me personally, I guess, if I didn't have not just an okay, healthy body, but an energetic, a, a level of energy and strength in order to cope with what I do. You can't, theatre actors, you know, it, it's a, exhausting. And you're, it, I always lose weight when I'm doing theatre because it is just so busy and you're so physical and you're expelling a lot of energy as you go. Different for on set, therefore have to be much more disciplined in your times off set and obviously that's why our, you know famous actors will go through these huge training regimes to get their body to a place in space so that they can do the task. And afterwards it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, that stuff all kind of falls away and you go back to it, you know, eating the donuts or whatever. But it's, you you just, it has, I was never an athletic kid. I didn't do gymnastics. Like I said, I wasn't very coordinated. I was a, I did do dancing. I was a dancing, singing, performing little kid. So that's where my, any type of athleticism that I might've hoped to have kind of went and was channeled. But I kind of, found Pilates when I was uh, when I got sick and then I managed to avoid having the surgery was put on medication but came out of that I was like well I don't want that to happen again and I got I luckily have had the determination to figure out how to fix my body and also just how to get stronger and healthier again and so yeah Pilates was a huge part of that for me literally building core strength and opening up my posture and lengthening my spine and doing all these things that you think when I say it out loud makes perfect sense for an actor on the stage or screen. But I hadn't done up till that point. There's footage of me when I'm 20, 21 and I slouch terribly on screen, <laughs> bending down to talk to Rachel McKenna. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, that's just something that I've had to upkeep because it literally affects my energy levels and, uh, as you said, it affects, you know, pain in your, being in your body or not. Um, I have to manage inflammation and my, I notice that like when I'm tired, my voice will get croaky because my body's dehydrated, <laughs> which it is a little bit now, but my voice is again, one of my most important instruments. So yeah, I, I guess it's, I think acting, you know, has been, is, is such a, doing things like this I look back in it and I go gosh it really has been the reason that I've learned so many things I'm really glad I know <laughs> yes you know like that I've that I place value on my relationships that I place value on my body and my health and that I've learned to understand the human experience and that means that I do have a certain kind of level of emotional intelligence that I'm much more prouder of than my lack of <laughs> actual intellect <laughs> and ability to throw a ball <laughs> <laughs> to throw a ball or solve a mathematical equation. <laughs> Has this high EQ made you more aware of energy suckers, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. I'm very, I'm very big believer in um, you have to be brave enough to get rid of the people that are, that are the energy vampires, suckers in your life, sort of, so to speak. I think, um, I do think that's a great part of becoming an adult. There's a lot that's hard about adulting. Um, but one of them is that you start to value and cherish your time and want to spend it with the people that add value or, you know, and I don't, not, not in a, a selfish way in a, in a, as you say, in the exchange of like, they elevate your life. And that means that you can go out and do, it's, it's elevating and emanating 
in your life so that you are giving to others and helping do whatever it is that you feel like you're here to do, you know, in the yeah. world. I do think it's about that. It's like that. spreading good juju. It totally is. And it, it, yeah, and I, I just, I think that's really important. I'm mm. so here to be positive and rose-tinted glasses and like, because there's enough shit in the world um, and there's enough negging constantly going on and being spewed at us from all corners. So I do think that... Um, surrounding yourself with the people who a you know bring you good juju and make you feel like you can offer your own is super important and and staying close to those things that you hold dear as you said it's going to be so different for um you have to figure those things out for yourself just like your value system and what's important to you and who's important to you, nobody else can tell you that. Really. Yeah. Like genuinely. You and your partner or sibling or child can have very, 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 you know, very different view for you. Yep. Um, different foods make you feel better or worse. Different music makes you feel happy or sad. Yeah, <laughs> like exactly, yeah. All of that. So you have my kind of beliefs at the moment is you really have to figure out. Um, and that can be of exercise, different types of exercise, diet, mental health practices, practitioners, people who are good for your health, like whether getting a massage once a month is really important to you or whether someone's um, <clears throat> finding, you know, whether it's meditation naps, whatever it is, there's, there's, there's so many tools out there now. I know that people get overwhelmed by choice. And I think that if you can accept that it's kind of like having – having all of the things available, but you have to listen to your inner voice to know what's right for you. And so with that said, um, what are you going to do now? Because you've, you know, <coughs> spent um, time sharing with me and with us the things that you've been doing. What's your plans, your dreams for, because it's your birthday in a couple of weeks, <laughs> so you're whipping away out of the country. Is that to escape your birthday? So you... Uh, no, I don't escape my birthday. I like spending my birthday with as many people as possible. Um, no, it's to escape winter. Fair Do enough. not like the cold. You talked about working behind the scenes and in acting, coaching, and other aspects of the production as a collaborator. Um, is that part of what you want to be doing for the future? Yes. I think one of the lovely things about growing and evolving um, as, as fast or slow as that might be happening <laughs> – um, or is it fuzzy? So I was happening sometimes. Um, is that I guess over the last sort of seven to ten years, I've spent a lot more time on the other side of the camera. And like I said, that obsession with the world of TV and filmmaking and being on the set, I learnt that that applies to. I'm actually just as happy being on that set and being a contributing member of the team. And I, um, it doesn't. I don't need to be acting to get that same sense of satisfaction. And I think that lesson sort of led me training in a few um, different roles on set and applying my same kind of voracious, voracious, voracious learning uh, sort of obsessions to that. <laughs> and so I have sort of started working, the work that I've been doing as an acting coach, I really love working with both kids and teenagers. I think having been a young actor on set, I have a really good understanding of what that experience is like to be able to help guide and reflect that experience. But I really want to, I'm sort of starting to move towards directing, writing, um, the experience of writing this book that I kind of produced a couple of years ago, um, which was this health and wellbeing book called Good For You, was interesting to go through and I found similarities when I was in, again, that kind of flow state of writing where I'm like, 
I know the story I'm trying to tell. I just got to let this thing come out of my body. Um, I really enjoyed that. And so I've been doing a lot more writing recently. I'm currently, I want to throw up in my mouth as I say this out loud, but I'm currently, I I can't even (laughs) say it (laughs) because this stuff is is going to need to talk about it in retrospect. You're in a safe place, in a safe place. I'm trying to write a novel. It, It might Become a TV show. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I would like to keep basically my future plans. Um, I sort of try to play the game of if somebody dropped $20 million in my bank account tomorrow, what would I do? And um, it would be I would pay. I would just pay smarter people than me to write TV and I would help make it. Whether my role in that process is acting, writing, directing, producing, coaching, I don't care as much. Any, I don't mind which of those things as much anymore because I'm getting, I think, equal parts pleasure of out of different parts of all of them. You know, I get equally pissed off with acting sometimes and, and all of the business and the sort of hard parts and the challenging parts of that as I do with, you know, with anything else. So I, I really am embracing the idea of um, doing all of those things as I can, when I can, however I can. Um, I put less pressure on myself to get to a um, outcome, um, but I am much more aware now of the parts of the process that I like doing. So I'm just trying to do more of those. I'm, I think, also getting to an age where the people, those relationships that I do have in my life, everyone's starting to get into that space where we, we've we've grown and we've kind of gone. Yeah, don't get me wrong, love acting. I mean, how many of our friends are kind of doing that? You know, it's gratefully these days there's so much less stigma around it I mean when I was 24 the idea of writing and directing and shooting as well as acting was does doesn't exist it not only was it not did not really exist it was seen as diluting your your whatever that is juice you know like it was kind of diluting your product right and so it was like oh you can't do that you need to stick to the one thing you stayed in your lane because there was power in that or something, which is absolute bollocks. And, you know, if I have any regrets, which I, I don't really do that often, but um, it would be that I didn't keep writing. I've always loved creative writing. I was quite a good English student. Um, I loved classical studies. I loved art history. Like I didn't keep painting and writing and taking photos and doing all of those kind of things that, as I said, if I'd been a bit more nurtured by my schooling or life to be an artist – which in New Zealand is just, you know, eye roll, who do you think you are? It's kind of that unfortunate mental um, space and place that we've come from, <clears throat> which I hope is changing, I think is changing these days. And if not, you just yourself. Um, but, yeah, I think now for me I'm much more interested in, like, following story, following an idea and seeing where that takes me. And if that takes me to writing a book or painting a painting or shooting a short film – then awesome because I love all of those things. So that's 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 where I'm going. Um, I, <laughs> um, and I'm going overseas, but that's because I have am lucky enough to sort of have friends and family, you know, in Aussie in the states, and I I like and and I like getting away for perspective shifts. Yeah, and especially after the last something. couple of years, I yeah, didn't have that so. freedom. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the question that I ask everybody that I talk to is a very simple one. 
But it's kind of a poignant one, I suppose, if you're talking about our three-part story structure. It brings us to the (laughs) The the final chapter just before the credits roll. Um, It's simply put to say, why do you do what you do? Because I don't feel like I have a choice. Because I feel like my inner workings are designed to do the thing that I'm kind of doing. And But even if – well, then – I know that I could do many other things if I wanted to. And as you said, if I turned around and sort of went, you know, I love architecture and buildings. I'm going to go and become an architect. I think one of the best things about the world we're living in today is that you can go and do that now. Um, But why I do what I'm doing now is because it is innate and it brings me great satisfaction. Um, it, It gives me... It gives me um, a connection to the greater world, not that it's the one that I think we were talking about before that makes me feel validated. It just gives me a sense of connection to the greater world, to why we're here and to trying to have a little tiny effect on something small along the way, I guess. So it kind of it feels like it is a part of my purpose. just don't feel like I have a choice. I'd say it's because I love it, but I think it's kind of deeper than that. It's sort of just more like it's it's just what's in me. If you'd asked me that when I was young and I said, you know, I'm an actor because I love acting, what I've now learned is that acting is a little bit like advertising these days. There's a million, there's different platforms and ways that I can tell a story. Now I'm just exploring the other pathways of telling the story. Well, I think that's a lovely way to resolve our conversation because as an eight-year-old, you know, your construct is the vehicle of an actor. That's mm. all you understand. And ultimately, you've just manifested that into these wider sets of what that word actor and what the idea of it meant to you then has now become this wider expanded version of that, but still true to to that. And I really admire that in people when I can validate them by saying, I see that. I actually see that that's been their journey and that they're not pretending you know, they don't, when I ask them that question, it's very easy to see people who can actually say, it's just because I have to. <laughs> why I do what I do? I don't know why. I don't know why. I, mm. As you just said, I, I have to. I don't, I could do other things, but I don't want to. Mm. Um, it's it's just because I have to. And there's something about that. It's the musician who has to write music. It's the writer who has to write, the painter who has to paint. It's mm. it's a creative urge that you tap into when you tap in for good. It's it's quite addictive and it's unstoppable sometimes and that you don't want to do anything else because it's just that's why you do it. And I think that people can find I hope people can find that in anything, right? Like you you can be you can have a job that maybe you don't feel completely sort of soul connected to, like maybe it feels like a job to you that is sort of um that is more technically minded or something where you don't feel like you're necessarily like you you haven't found the job that you're passionate about. But it earns an income that gives you the ability to to have safety and security, but also the ability to do something like pottery or make clothes that does make you feel like that. So I think I hope we're moving from a space where it's not about making money, but like you say, it's why you why are you talking to me? It's because of that work that I do, and and yeah, that that is the part of me that fills every space of every day. Really, it does. I don't sort of even when I wake up and kind of. As a freelancer, sometimes it's very easy to feel inert and get up and not know what I'm meant to do next because I'm sort of the driver of that bus and sometimes that bus stalls, <laughs> it breaks down. The wheels on the bus don't go around. And yeah. <laughs> falls into a ditch. <laughs> um, but 
at the end of the day, I, I, even in my lowest moments, I still have sort of come out of it and sort of gone, oh, turns out I still want to do this goddamn thing. Don't get me wrong. We, I have tried to bail out multiple times. A lot of my very, what I deem to be successful active friends have, we all go through those things where we're like, what? it's what other people say to us. Why are you doing it? Because <laughs> it looks really hard if you actually look, you know, if you look beyond the like shiny part of it. It's inconsistent, it's unstable, it's constant rejection, it's all these things that have got, you know, a little bit um, sadistic, like I said. But um, uh, it was masochistic when it's when you do it to yourself, right? Yeah, <laughs> sadistic when you do it to yourself. others. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, I'm sure I'm not nice to live with <laughs> when I'm in that state anyway. But yeah, it is Ooh. definitely that. I have tried to give up multiple times and it turns out I'm still still here. Well, um, I'm, I can speak on behalf of myself. I'm sure of lots of other people. Then we're very glad that you haven't so thus far, oh. and that uh, you've got the goals and dreams and wishes to continue to, you know, expand your creativity and put your mark on the world. And a big part of what I try to do is get people to focus on turning their thinking into reality. And you know, that's great to see that you mm. manifest that in yourself, even when it is hard, because that's when the challenges come with the rewards, and and you, only you know that you've achieved it in some ways. It's not about anybody else. It's the small wins you get for yourself. You know, so. Oh, all the time. The small wins that no one knows about. Like, I can't name them for you, but they're 100% the thing that keeps you going. Yeah. And the thinking into it, that's so true. It is so true. And it's really satisfying when you do it. It can feel like the biggest mountain to climb beforehand, but, man, the satisfaction on the other side is so uh, complete. And it always makes for a good story. You know what I mean? (laughs) Hey, well, thank you so, so much for giving me your time. It's been a pleasure to sit down and talk Mm. to you and um, get this much time with you before you do disappear off into creating the fantastic future ahead of you. But um, yes. Oh, my God. You make it sound really great. Thanks. It is from (laughs) where I'm sitting. Well, the thing is that um, you are, uh, it's a pleasure to sit down and do this with you because you're an incredibly astute human who also, as a friend, seems to recognize things in in the people around you that we don't often recognize about ourselves. But you you have a unique perspective and strategy to uh, or how this this work and, and information can apply in a strategic way to people's lives that I think is really valuable. Oh, so I thank hope you. That lots thank of you very much. Get to, um, get to listen to your wise words and your wise wise perspective too, Mr. Johnson. Oh, thank you very much. Well, in this case, they've had a chance to listen to your wise words. So again, <laughs> thank you very much for joining me and um, we'll uh, hopefully be able to get you back to hear about the next chapter of your story uh, if you'll be uh, able to come back and share some of that with us in the future. Thank you. Will do. Book two. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> that concludes this episode of Now I Am Listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and discovered a little bit more about how we all see the world and why. Visit nowiamlistening.com for more information about Claire, the book Good For You and some of her outstanding performances so far. Thanks to our production partner Evoke Audio. Check out adjacentcommunications.com for all your strategic marketing and content production needs. Turn your thinking into reality today. You can also hear our other episodes from this series by visiting nowiamlistening.com. As always, thanks for listening.